It's six o'clock in London, it's 1 p.m. in New York, 1 a.m. in Hong Kong, and 3 a.m. in Sydney, 10.30 at night in Mumbai, and 10 a.m. in San Francisco. Greetings, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world. My name is Patrick L. Young, the IPO Vid Livestream Series 3, Episode 4, this is number 16, starts here. After the recent failure of preparation, Washington DC authorities are now on a vastness of alert that the actual socially distanced crowd at the Capitol tomorrow will presumably be severely outnumbered by their guards. However, the relative security presence today in Washington after the recent debacle reminds me of the old Not the Nine O'Clock News breakfast sketch where presenter Mel Smith intoned seriously with words to the effect of, a recent psychological report has shown and helped explain much of the US arms buildup during the Cold War. Having been late for the last two world wars, the Americans are determined to be bang on time for the next one. Since our last show, the first new word of 2021 has emerged in financial markets, Gensler Freude. That's the term Exchange Invest has coined for the feeling of shameful joy which emerges when many bankers back the Biden-Harris electoral ticket only to be rewarded with their worst possible choice of regulator. Welcome to the Securities and Exchange Commission, Chairman Gary Gensler. And for good measure, the equally anti-capitalist consumer czar is going to be one Rohit Chopra, very, very much like Gary Gensler on the hard left of the Democratic Party. Back in the UK, there are concerns. High-tech British firms are eyeing US listings in a blow to post-Brexit London stock market. Ignore the Brexit nonsense, that's just flannel at the moment. Xavier Rowley actually surmised it very succinctly recently. Europe simply does not have the equity capital markets that understand and price innovation appropriately. That's the issue, nothing to do with Brexit. Tech firms preferring to list in America. Well, that's a hardy perennial because in the United States of America, well, at least pre-Gary Gensler, markets worked. And as even the former London Stock Exchange boss, Xavier Rowley, has noted, European markets don't. When it comes to achieving quasi-insatiable levels of investor appetite at healthy to high valuations that are simply not achievable elsewhere, the United States continues to remain supreme. Against that background, on Monday, Marcus Ferber, MEP, has suggested that there ought to be a master plan to grab Euro-denominated finance from London and the rest of the world and make the Eurozone a center point of global trade. Of course, integrated markets, a Eurozone powerhouse. Hold on, what could we call that master plan? I know, why do we call it Capital Markets Union? Oh, hold on a second. Well, let's be charitable, perhaps an appropriate statement to reflect on Monday, which was, after all, Martin Luther King Day. Marcus Ferber has a dream. Elsewhere in the Eurozone, Christine Lagarde, a serial panjandrum of multinational financial entities, right now it's the European Central Bank, reckons there will be a digital euro within five years which at least shows supreme optimism. She clearly thinks there will be an underlying euro, some might even say an underlying European Union, in five years' time. Well, indeed, maybe the euro has a digital future. Settle today announced that they've traded a central bank digital currency over their Settle architecture issued by the Banque de France. All this and more is being discussed daily in much greater detail and much greater pith in Exchange Invest Daily, the unique newsletter of the Bourse business. Send us an email or hit me, Patrick L. Young, on social media via whichever stream you're watching this and we can get you signed up to understand the exchange business better. Meanwhile, as I said last week, Exchange Invest is an entirely non-violent platform, but we do like one thing to be hit. Smash that like button, ladies and gentlemen. Like this wherever you are, whatever social media you're watching us on. It helps get us up the social media rankings and means that you manage to see fewer and fewer TikTok stars at the top of the rankings. Oh, if only we could ever manage to get there. Anyway, give us that New Year's boost and help the search engines get away from all that negativity in the COVID sphere. Talking of non-negative news, exciting news nonetheless, 74% of proprietary traders in a poll are looking towards emerging markets for the future of their exchange derivatives trading. That's according to a survey by Acuity. And 
as luck would have it. Our guest today is Will Mitting. He's the man who founded Acuity in February 2019 to bring greater transparency to operations across global capital markets. Will was previously the managing director of FOW and Global Investor Group at Euromoney International Investor, PLC. His previous experience includes launching the first magazine publishing business in the northern region of Malawi. Well, greetings, Will. How are you today and where in the world are you? Thank you, Patrick. Good to be here. So I'm uh, uh, dining in from London uh, in a very quiet and empty city at the moment. Wow. So you're actually in the office in the city of London. Yeah, I I think the, the rules stipulate that, that if it's unreasonable to work at home, and I have three small children in a small flat in Holloway, so I think that on occasion... I don't know if anyone wants to challenge the reasonableness of working from home with my children, they're welcome to welcome to try it. <laughs> I think they'd soon agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see we've had a magnificent couple of comments already from Danny Corrigan. Good to see you this evening, Danny. Did you know financial markets employees are considered key workers in the UK and receive preferential treatment in queue for the COVID-19 vaccine? So there you go. Well, you might you might be in line to get yourself COVID vaccine slightly earlier. You can queue up along with the grannies and other people. <laughs> and, um, and indeed, on that note, thank you for your comments, Danny. And indeed, we were talking about Settle. It was a central bank digital currency transaction. It was announced today. It's on the Settle website, which I do believe is settle.io, if my memory serves me correctly. The Bank of France have issued a couple of million of a central bank digital currency. It's a test. It's gone through the, and I'm going to get the name of this wrong now, isness, ixness, something like that, uh, that's going to be, well, it's a test. It's in the Eurozone. They've got some sort of a central bank digital currency running. So, ah, apparently it's the USA that uh, you can actually manage to get that priority. So if you're sitting there having lunch, try and stay with us until at least the end of the top of this hour before you rush off in the USA in order to get that vaccine. If you're in San Francisco, you've still got plenty of time before the morning's over, in fact. Now, Will, tell me a little bit about yourself, because you've got this, I mean, fantastic footnote to your career. We just love it. I mean, you ran, you created the first magazine publishing business or something in northern Malawi. Now, how do you get there in the first place? That sounds like quite a story. Uh, yeah, so so as with many things in life, um, especially the good things, it was following uh, my wife, in my wife's footsteps. So. So in, in the run-up to our marriage in 2008, she always she's a doctor and she always talked about how she wanted to go and work overseas and you know, never thinking it would happen, always agreed we would. And then the time came uh, when we finally did get married in 2008, 2009, um, that I'd run out of excuses. So, so we decided to up sticks and move to uh, a place called Mizuzu in, in northern Malawi, um, where, where Becky was the, uh, she ran or worked on and, and ultimately ended up running the children's ward at the local hospital. And I decided, having looked quite extensively into, into really the options, I, th I think at, at that stage, you were encouraged very much to go into a charity pro project. Um, but having read quite a lot about that aid and the, the failings and reading uh, books like White Man's Burden, et cetera, and uh, trying to understand the, the failures of aid over the years. I thought that a better model would be to try and understand how business can can propose a solution. So decided that instead of going and volunteering for charity, I'd set up a business, um, which we duly did, um, not expecting by any means to be the first publishing business in the northern region, but it did turn out that's what, that's what we were. They had a local radio, but it was an incredibly um, poor region with very little infrastructure. Uh, so it did turn out ultimately to be the first magazine publishing business in, in the northern region of the country. Wow, and how did it go? Yeah, I mean, it was it was fascinating. It was it was an incredible experience. Um, I think you don't prepare yourself really for the for the challenges, both in, uh, business wise and emotionally. Um, so certainly on the business side, it was at times just mind numbing. You know, you're you cannot rely on electricity. Uh, you you travel, you drive down to the to the financial capital in the south, and then the country would run out of petrol, and you'd be stuck there for for two weeks. You know the constant corruption that you that you had to deal with, um, which which was it just made it incredibly challenging to get things done. Um, but on the other hand, the you know, the opportunity and 
I guess the, the the environment there and the willingness of of people to to accept and adopt um, new ideas. You know, it's a whole country of entrepreneurs, and um, despite the, the challenges they face in daily life, it was a, it was an incredible experience and and probably the most profitable publishing business the I, business I've ever worked for on the basis that we were the only ones doing what we did. So we would used to, we used to have a uh, a seminar on. On, on how to advertise, uh, where we'd invite all the managing directors from the, from the local retail businesses, and we'd enthuse them on the benefits of advertising, and we would be the only vehicle through which they could do it. So the profitability of that business was immense. And, and today, you know, I, when I left, I, I I sold half the business off because we we set up uh, two magazines. One was a business magazine which was focused on on uh, nationwide um, finance, and that that obviously I think was well that was difficult to run from. From Mizuzu, so I sold that to a company in Blantyre, um, and then handed over what was re remaining of the business um, to the local employees, and, and they still, you know, they fully own it, and they still run the business today. And, and I would guess it moves at a slightly slower pace than, than, than I was. I tried to drive it back in when I was there, but it's still going, and it employs, I think, about thirty or forty people at last check-in. So it's one of the largest employers in in the in the town that we um, that, that, that I launched it in. So I think overall, as a model, I think it's quite an interesting one for. for for, for replication in the future, potentially. That's absolutely fantastic how to get ahead in advertising. Eat that, Richard E. Grant, when you're the only business in town teaching people how to do advertising in the first place. It's quite magnificent. So you had a publishing background before you went to Malawi? Uh, yes, so I've always been in, in business to business publishing, so kind of trade media or, or what was historically the, the, the trade magazines. Um, so I went to uni in Birmingham and then was was part of a startup um, when I left. No, not not a, a major part of it, but I was a launch editor of a, of a magazine focused on corporate finance in 2004, 2005. And then from there went to, to Haymarket, moving down to London and ultimately to Malawi, then Euromoney. Oh, excellent. Altogether in a career at Haymarket, a business for whom I freelanced over the years, but always in their automotive titles in a previous life, actually, when they were king of the kids in automotive titles, well, a few decades back. So interesting. You got to London, you became the, or you got back to London after your interesting sojourn, and you became the publisher at Euromoney Institutional Investors, future not FOW, or indeed it was rebranded while you were there, wasn't it? FOW arm. And then from there, you decided to jump into doing your own thing, be entrepreneurial again. Yeah, I think it was always a goal. It was always something I wanted to do. Um, certainly made you know, no secret of um, when I was at Euro Money. Um, but yeah, I, I think the time, the time. Well, I, I was going to say the timing was right, but obviously didn't anticipate a, a global pandemic in that timing. But um, but I, just, I felt that I'd, you know, I'd I'd done what I could at um at FOW. You know, we we I think we. We, we turned around to a large extent some of the businesses we we we'd grown a uh, what was a ultimately a very successful events business and then overseen the merger with um with, with global investor group and so i felt after after doing that that it was the right time to leave and then moved on to launch security um really looking for another challenge and to realize a, a life goal that i guess everything i'd done to date was was working up towards fabulous and so tell us a little bit about acuity so i guess security came about from from an analysis of of the b2b publishing market i think it, it, if you look at the evolution of that industry over the past 10 15 years a lot of people think that the internet has completely overhauled the business of um of publishing and and to a large extent that that obviously is true in the revenue streams that used to be driven by by print magazines which was a wonderful life you could do a, as an editor you could do a couple of weeks work and make easily enough money from advertising to produce a monthly magazine and the shift online obviously as you know patrick the business model for online publishing and online advertising is is far less uh, generous to the publisher than than obviously print was historically so that's been a challenge for for publishing but i think fundamentally what is not fully appreciated and, and certainly has not been fully responded to yet within the publishing industry, is that the internet has resulted in a loss of monopoly of audience. Uh, so mm -hmm. historically, if you worked in B2B publishing, whether that was for, for FOW or for you know, doorknobs or, or wardrobes monthly or whatever it, whatever it might be, 
you pretty much had an exclusive ownership of that audience. And if somebody was trying to sell into that audience, the, the really the only channel they could do was through you or through one of your competitors, of which in most industries that there, there were several. Um, whereas the internet obviously has, has democratized that access. So nowadays everyone has their own their own uh, audience. You, know, you go on LinkedIn, you go on your social media, you go on Twitter. You you have access to what was historically an exclusive audience for B two B publishing. So, so what, what, what Acuity, I guess, is trying to do is really understand or, or what value B2B publishers can, 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 can offer the market in a world where they don't own the audience. Um, so what, we, what we're doing here is everything, every process, every bit of content, every concept such as events, we're looking at and saying, well, how do we do it better? What, how do we change the model? Because I think the, the actual core publishing model, again, hasn't changed for 100 years if you look at your publishing news, your publishing analysis. So what we're trying to do at Acuity is we're trying to provide a platform through which people can share information and share ideas, share, share actions, share processes. So everything we're doing is around that single concept of let's build a platform that senior executives from initially the derivatives market can come onto and they can they can share information for the, for the with the interest of providing transparency over operations. Uh, so that's what we're trying to do. And you know, we, we've made some steps. Uh, obviously, COVID knocked us back a couple. Um, but, but in 2021, we've got big plans for, for developing that. Well, it's quite incredible. I tip my hat off to you because you really had a bit of a nightmare last year because you were just getting things together beautifully. And then COVID, bang, everybody was thrown out of the office and suddenly nobody was meeting anywhere. Yeah, it was a major, it was a major challenge, obviously. Um, you know, the... I think that certainly the immediate challenge for us was revenue-wise. We, we'd forecast going into 2020, our business model was let's make money from events, let's cover costs from events, and then we can innovate in terms of, uh, of research and data sharing underneath the, the uh, protection of the events business, which is probably, apart from cruises for 90-year-olds, one of the worst strategies you could have got into to 2020 with. Um, so we very quickly had to had to refocus. Um, so there was some very long nights in March where we it looked. You know, I, I, if I'm honest, there were times when I thought, well, at least just at least if it does fail, it's not my fault. Um, but but ultimately, we focused very hard on the research business that we were already building. Um, so so it it was an interesting challenge to be told. 12 months into a startup that you cannot make money from the only proven rev revenue stream you have. Um, but, but I think because we were small, because we, you know, we, we didn't have a big track record or big revenue streams to defend, it enabled us to be much more nimble. Um, and as you referred to, I think the second challenge, which I think was actually a greater one, was the operational side of it. And my wife is um, an intensive care uh, paediatrics consultant and her ward was tur turned into uh, a COVID ward. So she was working every hour God sent, and and the kids would would generally. I uh, got uh, well, at the time I had seven year old twins and an eight year old, uh, slightly old, well, a year older now, but seven year old twins and an eight year old to look after during during a, a, a pandemic of where we had to homeschool for a lot of the time. So operationally was the most challenging, just trying to find the hours of the day to to turn around the business and, and obviously predominantly support uh, Becky and what she was trying to do because clearly you know, that was far more important than, than anything I, I had on my plate. Well, well, clearly, I think it becomes a lot more transparent the more you speak, just why you're in the office on your own at the moment trying to do this live stream rather than sitting at home with three children under the age of eight. Uh, I'm sure that's going to be quite an exciting effort. And when you're at home, it must be, well, probably life affirming, like the old life pits were somewhat life affirming. Thank you very much, Tom Lant. Hello to you. Good evening. It's good to see all of you this evening. Thank you so much for all your messages. Danny Corrigan. Yes, I would agree with you. Settle are absolutely awesome. And some of the things they've been doing recently, quite impressive altogether. Any of you, please send us a question. What would you like to ask? We are going to be talking about actually some of the research and some of the issues that Acuity have been raising recently when they've been going out and polling the market. So send a message, what you'd like to ask and to discuss with Will. And don't forget, of course, before you finish this off today, please hit that like button or send us a comment, send us a question so that we can interact with you and make this the best possible show that you can manage to get. Great stuff, Will. So you've a multiplicity of reports have come out. What particular major landmarks have you seen in terms of your development so far in some of the research that you've unveiled? Um, well, I think, uh, we, I think we put out about, well, about 15 report, 15 um, commission reports last year, as well as our monthly insight report. Um, so I think to, to, to separate those out, so, so 
the Intel report we produce monthly is based on a, uh, on a snap poll of, um, of senior executives from across the global market who share with us, uh, anonymously share with us information on, uh, on things like revenues, operational challenges. Um, I, I, I think obviously this, this year has been fascinating in terms of the diversity of revenues. Uh, if, you know, I think we saw obviously March, April, a huge spike in revenues in, across the board. So some, obviously some firms got hit on, on the wrong side of the volatility, but, but we saw some firms were reporting that they would made their entire a, a annual revenue of the previous year in one month. Uh, so, so that huge spike in revenues, um, was followed by a slump. I mean, just the most barren landscape for trading. I think in August, uh, Yorex's volumes were um, were lower than they'd been for, for or second lowest month for about fifteen years. So we saw that just this this year of feast and famine across the board was picked up in our in our monthly survey. And that, and I guess that report is 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 almost like a, a heartbeat of the industry. You know, it's it's there, it's always there, and it's interesting when it stops or goes faster. But if but it's nice just to know it's it's, it's beating away. Um, and then like and then I guess related to that, obviously a lot of the work we've done uh, since March has been around understanding how. COVID and the volatility has changed attitudes to, to things like investment and post-trade, to trading new markets, as you referred to at the beginning. And over, over that, what we're seeing again and again is, is, is a re-evaluation, I think, of, of capacity and, and a major focus on operational resilience. Uh, obviously, when everyone moved to the remote environment working from home, I think you'll find, you won't find many people who were surprised how efficiently that went and it's a testament to the to the resilience of the industry that they were able to shift globally and seamlessly to remote working environments from a trading back office processing compliance perspective but the technology i think came under pressure we we certainly picked that up in a snap poll we did in april we found that 50 58 of of clearing firms uh, that responded to the survey experienced major issues with, with back office processing and reconciliation and we followed that up with a with a report with a report with with broadridge that came out uh, in november uh, looking at how that's changed attitudes and, and and we found a massive increase in in uh, in, in investment coming down the line in post post trade so i think overall the what we the story of 2020 was one of understanding where the limits of current operations are and 2021 i expect to be about solving those in a way that is more comprehensive than they've been solved historically if that makes sense fascinating so looking at that whole situation i mean you mentioned this whole thing i mean volumes exploded in the early part of last year the miracle i mean the incredible thing and we have to take our hats off and salute the entire industry is how well that worked because you know we had really next to no downtime. We had the exchanges worked, pretty much every broker worked. Yes, there were all sorts of pain points in the clearing end of the market, etc. Where do you see the pain points or where are you hearing the pain points are at the moment in the exchange traded derivatives world? Yeah, I think that's that's the key point that it, it did go incredibly well and it is testament. So I don't want any any of the any discussion you have about where areas can be improved shouldn't shouldn't crowd out the fact that overall it worked remarkably well but it's certainly post-trade i think if you look historically at the amount of money that's been invested in the front office versus the back office you know you're capable now of trading in almost picoseconds i think is the the latest frontier i'm sure you'll correct me on on that patrick but it's you know, immensely fast trading whereas some of those trades are then cleared into a, a system that's powered on a, on a green screen uh so there's, there's there's a mismatch i think in the market and that is one of technology investment but it's also one of of harmonization across the market we did a, a project with euro money trade data looking at uh, reconciliations and and, and um, re as a reference data um, and, and and i think one of the key focuses as well or one of the, sorry one of the key areas that were exposed or has been exposed and is known about for some time is the challenges that the, the fragmentation of reference data across the market poses. So where you have a bank sort of whose operations have come together through mergers or through internal silos being broken down, they often speak different languages in the back office and, obviously, uh, and, and you know, clearing systems will, will speak a different language in terms of the symbology to the front office. So an enormous amount of money has been invested by the tier one banks in resolving that. But a lot of that has been spent in, in offshoring 
people in order to, 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 to throw human capital at the problem. And I think the next phase of that evolution is, is to, to start fixing it from a technological perspective, which clearly in the long run will be much more efficient. And I guess, again, that's something that probably the, the volumes and the volatility in March exposed is the limitations of, of technical issues that have been solved with, with patches over the year or we're just adding more people over the years. So I expect that to, to become a major trend in 2021. Very interesting. So there's obviously going to be a lot of investment. Some vendors will be salivating, but at the same time, it sounds as if some vendors have to be worried because they're still selling solutions with green screens in certain places. And obviously, that's a quite a big change that's going to take place. What about the overall other side of the spectrum? Because obviously, therefore, if people are investing, that means their costs are rising. Is there any flexibility? Does that mean we're going to see fees going up for transactions in ETD? Yeah, we've already beginning to pick up uh, fee increases. Uh, so it was first became apparent in in July. So our report every six months we ask about uh, a cost basis and fees, and and we saw in July the beginnings of FCM starting to raise fees, in particular in the option space back in back in July. And uh, now in the report that came out today, we see a much more broad based fee increases in Europe and the and the US in particular. There's still very tight competition for pricing in Asia, um, but we certainly see fee increases for futures um, coming in uh, on the from the FCMs down to clients in. Um, in in UK and the US and and I think ultimately I'm I'm sure I'm going to get a, a shot for this by in some corners of the market but I think I think generally that would be accepted I think that's fair one thing that the the crisis certainly exposed was the 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 risk profiles that each uh, participant in the market is exposed to and I think the FCMs versus the risk versus reward, I think the FCMs are, are are the most disadvantaged in that respect. You have the exchanges, obviously the host of it, who are exposed to very little uh, commercial risk. Um, obviously the props, the hedge funds, the end users uh, have a great risk, um, but but also they are they are party to, to outsized rewards when trades go well. Uh, in the middle, you have the FCMs who, who's, who's, I'm not saying they didn't make Good money in in March and April. Now, as we've discussed, the the, the, the volume increases meant they did. Um, but there, we saw a couple of high profile blow ups and, and a big losses from the FCMs. And I think that really brought to everyone's attention how significant the risk for FCMs are, um, and also the the, the the potential threat to the sustainability and the, and the long term commitment of some FCMs in the market. And 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 uh, there the, the seems to me a, a very general. A broad realization that that it's worth spending a little bit more on the FCMs to make sure that they're there and providing good competition in the market. Well, certainly, also it's been a bad decade, if not longer, for it's been a bad generation almost now for the FCMs because in the past they were so used to making money out of haircuts between what they had to seg, you know, sequester and what was going into the clearing houses. Whereas nowadays, where interest rates are actually negative, it can be a problem to have that much money on your balance sheet, which has been a huge issue of tension for the the FCM community. Absolutely, and you know, some of them have done. Have done a lot to address that by taking some of the the, the, the interest payments off, off the balance sheet in that respect. But I think it's really shown in the report we put out today. At the end, at the end of last year, we asked whether people expected this was in early December, so really almost at the end of the year, we said, you know, do you expect twenty uh, twenty to be uh, to be a, an exceptional year or a good year or a poor year for, for for revenues? And we broadly found banks and and uh, prop firms both saying uh, certainly 60-70% of them in the category saying it was either a good or an exceptional year for for for, for revenues in their business uh, going into 2021 we're asking about headcount um, increases and the expectation for, for, for raising headcounts so if you assume if you assume that these businesses are going to 2021 with roughly the same uh, performance in 2020 and we see a massive divergence in terms of how the sell side is looking at also, how the banks in particular are looking at 2021 compared to the props and hedge funds. So for example, props and hedge funds, 82% said they expect, expect to increase headcount in, uh, during the year compared to just, I think it was about 30% of, of, of banks. Um, in fact, 35% of banks, I think, was, are actually expecting to decrease headcount over the year with, um, with uh, the business development roles expected to be the most likely ones to be cut. So there's clearly very, very different uh, outlooks for the year. And I think that just brings home again the challenges and the pressures that banks are under in this zero or, or near zero interest rate environment.
And, and what about the clearing industry per se? What's the sort of feedback about there? Because I think one of the things that I particularly worry about, and I'm not, I know I'm not alone, and I certainly mention it quite often, Exchange Invest is the idea that we're going to suddenly lose some more of the GCMs. Because, I mean, the GCMs per se are, well, first of all, in some ways, they're a bit, they're a bit of an anachronistically titled, because in this day of thousands of markets, nobody's really a GCM the world over. But certainly, there are, say, 20, 25 major players across the world, but most of those are regional. There are really very few who can service a broad swathe of the world. How are their finances? What, what are you getting as the feedback from them as a group in terms of how they're viewing the future? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that that the argument about or the analysis of uh, GCM consolidation is, is overblown. It's often uh, if people tend to look at the CFTC uh, report they put out every month and the number of registered FCMs with the CFTC and say it's gone down from what 190 to, to, to 80 or 90, whatever it is today, I don't know the, the, the exact figures, but it's gone down significantly um, over the past 15 years. Uh, we did a report last year which analysed exactly how much consolidation there had really been and we found that, that there had been some consolidation, but that generally was pre-2000. And in fact, most of the firms that had come out from the CFTC register either had low to minimum, low to zero uh, customer assets, or they were they were multiple uh, entities of the same ultimate parent. Uh, so I think the first one probably is that the, the, the GCM consolidation has been overblown. Um, that said. There are certain markets where there's been significant retrenchment from. So while an overall number of firms, there have been some pullouts, but the overall number of firms is broadly the same today as it was uh, a decade ago. It's very specific to client base. So if you're a if you're a large asset manager, you have almost or a corporate, you have almost unlimited firms you can go to to clear your your positions. If you're a broker or say an options trading, uh, options market maker, you have very very limited number of firms. Uh, so I think that the, 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 there is an opportunity there, and I think. We're increasingly seeing signs that that opportunity is being looked at more uh, aggressively from some of the the banks who, obviously, moving on to the to the different margin or the uh, capital treatment regimes in the U.S. allows them to service options clients in a in a more capital efficient way. I think we're going to see people coming into that market um, offering um, clearing clearing services to to options firms in light of the fact that there has been that, that pull away over the last decade. Um, we also see banks sort of coming back into the market. You know, UBS, obviously, there was an article in Risk uh, the, the, the other day. Connor Cunningham's there, um, and he's look, he, he's building back UBS's clearing ca- capabilities back. Um, and I heard a couple of other banks that, that aren't yet public, but I've spoken to about them looking to, to, to do that as well. For firms that traditionally were relatively large in the market that pulled away and are now coming back in. So I think you're going to see more... Uh, firms coming in. Obviously, capital rules are a major issue for that. Um, but assuming they're sorted out once interest rates come come back, if and when they do, uh, and it's a more favourable environment, I think it'll be very quickly, uh, you will see competition return across the market. So just, just going into that for a moment, what are the motivating factors you think or that you're hearing that is likely to bring new GCMs into the market? So I think it's, it's, the, it's, it, it's the growth of uh, entities in the hedge fund and um, the proprietary trading space. I, we don't have any empirical evidence on, on the prop side, but uh, but while growth in hedge funds has slowed, as I understand it, I think there are more coming in. Uh, but here, anecdotally, there are more and more prop firms uh, launching, certainly as a result of, of some of the successes in 2020. Um, and also, it's the regional expansion. I think you, you're seeing more aggressive client base from Asia who want to get into international markets. So I think the pie is growing. And that's the first time. That's again a bold statement. And I'm sure I'll get um, I'll get tripped up on. And there's nothing empirical behind it. It is anecdotal. But my sense is that the pie is growing. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think the other point is that, that, that clearing ultimately was a good business when interest rates were were high. Um, so should interest rates return, it will be a good business again. And for for a lot of people, it is a good business still with with, with rates rates where they are. Finally, I think that a lot of banks who pulled away from clearing realise that they are lacking something they're not able to offer clients a full service so certainly the 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 banks i've spoken to recently who are pushing back into the market have very strong um, franchises in specific parts of the market that they're looking to offer a more universal service to clients Uh, so i think those are probably the major trends that are driving um, people to look back into this market 
Very, very interesting in the whole GCM business, as you say, and probably the greater accessibility of more modern software that doesn't actually happen to be harking back to the green screen era with a uh, plug to COBOL somewhere in the back is probably enthusing people as well. Um, and actually, I mean, when you talk about the pie growing, I mean, you look at some of the equity statistics we've seen in recent times, and certainly the 10 million people who suddenly appeared out of nowhere on Robinhood during the course of last year. And actually, I mean, the, the Moscow exchange last week, they had incredible statistics for equity trading, admittedly not exchange traded derivatives, but they welcomed 5 million new customer accounts during the course of last year, which was actually not just more than they've ever done in, in any one year, it's actually more people than traded in their history. They started at about three and a half million, ended at eight and a half million. So I think there is intrinsic evidence that the pie is growing all the time. And certainly the options volume seems to suggest that, which is quite incredible. Speaking of which, hello to several guests this evening. JC, the messiah of the front end, as he once was. Um, Jonathan Cowan, good to see you. Thank you very much for your comment, Jonathan. It's great to hear from you. Glad to know that you're well. Um, we've also got an interesting, well, we've got a couple of questions. We're going to go to Stuart's question first. Hyphenated Stuart is asking, do you think that clearing fees should be a function of time position is held rather than simply on a per trade basis? Well, that's quite a deep question. Yeah, I mean, that's slightly, uh, I, I guess, slightly beyond my my area of expertise. But I, I mean, I, how would you work that out? Surely that would be... Uh, an incredibly complicated schedule. I think one of the you know, one of the things that we're picking up on across the market is the need for greater clarity of or less sorry, less complexity of fee structures, um, more predictability of fees. So I think if you're going to introduce a a, um, a, dime, uh, a, a consideration such as that, how would you do that in a way that was didn't just introduce far more complexity and less transparency into the ability to forecast costs? Stuart, thank you very much for your question. If you want to ask another and uh, come back with another one, I'm actually thinking of something. When you've been doing your research, and maybe you don't actually ask this, but I note that you've been talking about people saying they're raising their fees and so on. Do we have any sort of a feeling of by how much fees have been raised recently? And I don't seek a precise number, but it's, I mean, is it 2%, 10%, 20%? Do we have any sort of an idea of the increment? Uh, not uh, not yet in for the clearing side. Um, so we are looking at doing something along those lines um, uh, coming up over the next few months. But we've got to be careful of of uh, competition, um, anti-competitive behaviour, obviously, as a result of that. Um, no, so we don't see how much is being raised by. Um, aside from on the market data side, we've just done a big study into market data, which is coming out in uh, February. Um, and that we we do ask how much um, fees have gone up by, and, and it's pretty shocking. I mean, firms are re re recording tripling or uh, doubling or tripling of, of total fees on market data when you think that the banks generally are paying $250,000 a month or more in market data fees um that's a that's a considerable uh, amount of increase so on the clearing side not yet um it's something we, we're looking at how we get that very interesting altogether but certainly i mean some of the fees that you're talking about that are doubling or tripling had become absolutely wafer thin i mean barely pennies on the on the dollar presumably well, so that was that that was was um was specific to market data fees um charged by exchanges. But you're right for the for the FCMs the, the per trade fees are, are very low, especially when you compare it to um to to what the exchanges are, are generally charging. You're quite right. Well, sorry, I was just basking in the glory of Jonathan Carr's very kind comment because he says that he's reading my book, which I will therefore emblazon victory or death. If you want to learn the future of Blick, Blick, Blick join? blockchain cryptocurrency in the fintech world, it's got a forward by none other than Jeffrey Sprecher, the chief executive of the Intercontinental Exchange, an organization who are well known to everybody in the exchange traded derivatives business, to put it mildly. If you're not in the exchange traded derivatives business and you're listening, he's the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange. So interesting to hear from you jonathan thank you very much i hope you enjoy the book i look forward to your feedback i hope all's well with you and in your technical analysis ventures at all so will we've got another great question here moving shifting gears ever so slightly it's looking at remote working so how are exchange traded derivatives companies looking at remote working going forward have you grasped any interesting insights yet we asked at the end of last year, we asked when firms were expecting a return to the office. Um, and it was, I should say, I think it was a second second or third time we, we'd asked that. And, and each time 
the, the, the date when people expected a full return to the office has subsequently passed, obviously, without it. Um, so what we found, and I can't remember the exact statistics, but the overarching um, conclusion was that there is not expected in any way to be a significant shift of, of, of uh, to home working in the long term. Um, in terms of timings, at the top of my head, I think people expected by the end of, uh, or with it, during Q2 to be fully back in the office, and only a fraction, I think it was 2 or 3% of people thought there would be a permanent shift to, to working from home for a majority of the staff. So while um, you, know, you hear this commentary elsewhere in the market or elsewhere in, in the world about uh, this new shift of, of home working, uh, we don't certainly see, we don't pick up anything to suggest that that will happen in, um, in the EGD world. Very interesting altogether and therefore good news to hear that we were the first people to lead in the whole business of managing to be ahead of the curve in terms of how to make home working work, which we did incredibly efficiently throughout the parish of exchanges and indeed exchange of derivatives. But at the same time, we're going to be leading the vanguard back to work, which is good news for all those of you who are currently watching this live stream while the cat is probably attacking your slippers and the children are screaming in the background. Soon, your colleagues will be screaming in the background and everything will be back to normal. Um, Thank you very much for the uh, for the kind comments and all the questions. We've still got time for more. We've got 20 minutes left, ladies and gentlemen. Don't forget to tune in, check in exchangeinvest.com and please sign up for a subscription to the daily newsletter of the horse business. If that tickles your fancy, drop by acuity.io and look for some of the reports. You've got various reports, if I remember correctly. You can even sign up for and some of your stuff you distribute for free, Will, if I, if I remember correctly. Absolutely right, Patrick. Yeah, indeed. Sign up and, uh, yeah. No, excellent. I mean, that's a really, really great service altogether. So what do you think? I mean, are the looking at the noises you're hearing back from the market, whether it's in clearing, whether it's on the technology side, whether it's on the data side and so on, or the brokers themselves, what are the things that people are most concerned about right now in the ETD industry? Um, I think... Well, I mean, I, I, in terms of what's unique, um, I think we, the thing is a problem in Europe. I think um, European revenues are subdued compared to Asia and uh, and the US. Uh, we obviously don't have the big uh, big retail options market that you have in um, in, in America. Uh, we don't have the growing base of, of new users coming into the market that you have in Asia uh, and, and obviously other emerging markets like like South America, et cetera, with Brazil in particular, are shining. So I think the, over, uh, the, the, the broad answer, I think, is in Europe there's a concern over what's next, where, where does the growth come from next in the industry? Um, and, and people are looking enviously across the world at, at other opportunities and people steaming ahead. Um, but aside from that, I think it's, it, it is all about sustainability and resilience. And uh, as I said before, I think that is top of the list of every executive um, in the market now about how to build a, a longer term, more sustainable, more automated um, uh, infrastructure for trading. And the exchanges are, are not alone in, uh, sorry, exchanges are not exempted from that conversation as well, despite the fact that, that they too perform well, they have been high profile blow up. So I think it's just about operational resilience going into throughout 2021. Yeah, right. So operational resilience is obviously therefore a really key thing. People are very worried about it, and rightly so. But on the other hand, so far so good. The actual progress has been incredible in the exchange-traded derivatives world. And you look actually at some of the, the major outages, and they've all been with brokers on the cash exchange, equity exchange market, rather than being particularly anybody in the, in the derivatives brokerage space most of the time. How do you see, for example, the within the European space, is there any way that you think that there can be improvements to liquidity making those markets go better in the American mold? I think it's all about stimulating the, the, the retail participation. Obviously, there's many, the, U, the European markets are very different to the UK, to the, to the US markets, uh, in particular, the the CFD market doesn't exist or it doesn't exist at all in the US. Um, so the competition from that market is immense. Um, but. But, but I think that is the way, that's where the growth and increased participation needs to come from. And, and you've got to expect, especially if you look at the FX markets, as firms or as traders grow and millennials grow up trading, they're going to be le less than satisfied long term with, with the cost of the CFD market. So futures will be a natural um, shift for them. 
But I, I would. I think we. You know, it would be remiss me not to talk about ESG as well. ESG clearly is an area of immense opportunity, and it's something that that um, that exchanges like such as Jurex are, are, are taking the lead in globally. So, so there is definitely innovation there. Um, but I think you, you you need to broaden the participation in in European markets uh, to, to to the same levels in the US markets. Otherwise, we're going to be increasingly left behind. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly it's quite marked. I mean, we were discussing this a number of live streams back with um, including others, Kevin Kennedy of NASDAQ. And it's very interesting because you take even a company that's listed in Europe and listed in the USA. And I think one good example would be Ferrari, which runs under the acronym RACE in the US, certainly. And I mean, Ferrari options during the day in Italy are just appalling. I mean, you couldn't just drive a Ferrari through them. You could, you know, you could drift a Ferrari through them absolutely sideways while towing a caravan. And then suddenly at three, 30 in the Central European afternoon, 2.30 London time. It's incredible. The whole world changes. And in the US, you have that amazing options infrastructure and the prices are totally competitive in terms of the bid offer spreads and what you can actually trade. So th there's a lot of work to be done there, obviously. Now, the one you talked about, you mentioned it earlier, you've got this big thing coming on market data. And obviously market data is a huge hot potato at the moment. So almost anything you say is going to be deemed controversial. No pressure there. But at the same time, you're just reporting what you've heard from the set of data that you're talking to. So can you give us a little bit of a feeling of, of what the marketplace is telling you about the issue of market data in 2020 coming into 2021? Yeah, and as you say, it's probably one of the biggest hot potatoes in the industry right now. And, and, and it's, it's become a lightning rod for for, for, a, for a number of issues and come to represent a number of issues. So I think there's so there's, there's so many different dimensions to it. What what we're trying to do with the report is is in addition to to a customer review of uh, market data fee providers, which is part of our customer review series, um, and we're 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 getting in deep insight. Um, reviews of, of those providers. In the first section for each of these projects, we, we analyze the market and analyze the conditions. Um, there's so many issues. And what, what, what we don't want to do is just have everyone thinks market data is too expensive and the exchanges to stop charging them. I think generally there is there's a realization that the exchanges became demutualized around the, the, the turn of the, the century, um, that they are now independent listed businesses. Um, who have to make money through growth. So the question we're trying to ask is, is market data fee is market data fee charges the way they're currently structured optimizing growth or is it holding back growth? That's one of the questions we want to want to explore. Um, another one is assuming that you're not going to be able to just eradicate uh, market data fees, how best should they be structured? And I know a lot of there's a number of um, number of uh, uh, regulators also looking into this topic. Um, but, but interesting, what we find is that everybody agrees, everyone argues for an exemption um, for themselves. So, so you'll have market makers saying, we should be exempted because we, we are providing a service and we're trading all this volume. You have non-market, other people say, well, the market makers, we should be exempted and the market makers should pay because they're getting paid already. So, you know, they're already making the money. They're actually, obviously, they're making money from our trade. So they, they need to pay. So I think if you look down, we're trying to understand solutions and exemptions probably is not the right way to do it. So we're trying to so then you come to what are the possible solutions? And I think simplification um, and, and harmonization is probably where we're going to end up. Now, still, we haven't finished the, 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 the data analysis yet, and we still got a little bit more data to, to collect. But I think it's reducing the complexity. Um, it's getting getting rid of things like the same user paying four or five times across multiple devices and, and display, non-display, these, these, what are to these days nonsensical um, or, or certainly less relevant uh, splits in terms of usage than they were previously. Uh, so I think it's harmonizing complexity and there will have to be some give from the exchanges as well, I think, if, it, if they're going to solve this problem. And long term, I, we, I genuinely believe it's in the exchange's interest to do it. As I mentioned, regulators are looking very closely at this. If they don't I think make moves and start to start to give a little bit. They're going to get hit with a quite a draconian sanction that might for, might be more damaging to their to their market to their business as a result of 
being able to charge market data fees significantly lower than they do today. I think I think there's what's called for is a bit of uh, each side each side meet, meeting it halfway, um, but but an end to the constant rises, an end to these uh, audits that are designed purely to find something that they can charge for, um, and that I, I think will, peace will break out again in the in the market, and I think everyone will be a lot happier as a result. You know, it's very interesting because, I mean, as a kind of boil on the bum of progress when it comes to futures trading, because I'm only really buying one data feed at a time or maybe two, I actually don't see any major change in data prices over the course of the last 20 years. One or two exchanges have gone catastrophically, seismically more expensive, and I don't trade there. But most of the rest are actually about the same price for one user. But I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's such an interesting issue, this audit culture where you get a man with a clipboard who used to work for one of those odious consultancies is running around trying to find something you've done wrong and he's he feels like one of those people from the performing rights society who are always trying to catch you out if you run a cafe to see whether you've uh, actually allowed for all of the square footage in your shop etc it's just it's just annoying box ticking and doesn't really seem to make any sense because it upsets the customers um at the same time to be fair exchanges are processing a quantum of data more than they were pricing um, two years ago. So, I mean, you know, in that sense, prices haven't necessarily gone up a lot, but there is a huge burden of cost and obviously we have to think about it. So I want to actually jump to a different topic. We might come back to market data in a moment because we've got a super question back from Stuart. He's asking um, all about ESG. So what is your opinion, Will, on the future growth prospects for ESG? And is a serious uptake of ESG products in the ETD space? Is it a fad? What do you reckon? So no, it's not a fad. It's um, this is driven by real money um, and serious amounts of real money. Uh, so obviously, it, it was born out of the the the, 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 the uh, Nordic asset managers, big Nordic pension funds, um, and the question, I guess, is not. The ETD space will reflect what's happening in the broader market. Uh, my guess is it is that that, that will only grow. Um, I think there's a there's a number of issues that are currently uh, holding back growth. Obviously, the 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 the, term, sorry, the, 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 the language and the, how ET how ESG is is quantified and um, uh, it needs to be harmonised to a large extent. So we need to get establish common standards for how it's measured. Uh, but undoubtedly, there's a, there's a groundswell of of um, a VSG in the real economy, and that will only grow, I think, as millennials and 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 the, the generation below them um, mature. So ESG is very nascent, in particular in the ETD space. It's it's very nascent, but you've seen significant growth. I, I think one of the fastest growing contracts in Europe last last year by Notional was was an ESG uh, contract on on, on Eurex. Um, so no, this is here to stay. Um, the, the the product will evolve, so I think it will look very different in a decade to how it does today, and people will think about it very differently to how they do today. Um, but I think rather than being a fad, I think it will be just become how people invest. Very interesting altogether, and obviously the incredible rise of indexation surrounds us in the ET business. As we saw last week when we were talking to Mark Makepeace, and that's uh, one of the back issues you can catch up with on wherever you're streaming today, you can go and Google Google and search for it also on YouTube at IPO-vid. You can catch any of these conversations. If you've got a question, let me know. We will be happy to answer them. We're into the last seven minutes of the show today. Thank you very much, Stuart, for your questions. Those have been most thought-provoking altogether. So looking forward then, what else do you think in terms of, I mean, the search for what are, what are you know everybody's out there looking for more money is is there something you think you can identify that is something that is going to provide or help increase the revenues of the etd business players i think it's the ongoing globalization i think that's that's where the the opportunity is for for everybody, but in particular for trading firms, and the report we had out today that you mentioned at the beginning of three quarters of firms looking for for um, for, for, for emerging or frontier markets or to, to trade emerging or frontier markets over the next uh, next twelve months. Um, that's a huge opportunity. There's so many markets out there with very very nascent, some non-existent uh, derivatives markets, um, and you see you know, Saudi Arabia obviously launched their first. Uh, or I don't know, you're probably correct. Man, did they have something historically? I, I don't know. If, I'm not sure they did, but but, but they launched their, their, their the recent iteration of their futures market in um 
last year and they're planning to grow that um over the next uh, next two years and then obviously china um I've, we've been i've been following china now for for over well best part of a decade um from my early days at fow uh, and just seen just immense growth in that market not just in terms of volumes but in terms of the number of products launching and if and if you think there's still only we're still probably again i'll be correct on this but i think probably less than 50 futures contracts that trade in in china uh, so there's clearly huge potential for growth in that the, the listed bond market is 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 very very nascent currently still um and it's again in its current iteration so there's there's definite reasons to be to be optimistic but it is about tapping into that global growth and making sure you're not left behind. So innovation, I think, in Europe is more important than ever before. Um, we need to make sure that we're an attractive market for international investors to come into rather than just providing um, what, what we need for, for, for local investors. But I think ultimately, if you look globally, there's so many bright prospects. It's a really good time to be in this market. Well, it's lovely to have such optimism. Isn't that great to hear? I mean, good grief. We barely managed to mention COVID for 15 minutes. You're optimistic for the future. And actually, the one thing that is really encouraging here is that it sounds to me as if despite the challenges that are going on and there are some nutty issues to solve, no doubt the exchange traded derivatives business seems to be net-net optimistic as it has long been. Is that a fair comment? It certainly is. So we picked up again today in the report we put out today, 62% of uh, respondents are uh, optimistic about growth over the next three months. Um, I think before we found a majority that thought this year was going to be quite volatile. Um, so I guess if you look at the short term drivers of volatility, you could argue that they're, that they're, they're bearish. You know, interest rates being low for, for the foreseeable future is clearly a major, major challenge, not just for banks, but also for, for trading firms who, who, who are trading volatility in those markets. But I think once you get past COVID, once you get back to quote unquote a normal economic environment um i think there is there, there is optimism um and but it, it's not going to be easy it's not you know it's not it's not a lot of days you can go onto the life floor and 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 take every opportunity that, that, that there is out there it's going to get harder you're going to have to try harder to get that to get that opportunity you're going to have to build internationally you're going to have to connect to new markets um but there certainly seems to be an increasing willingness to do that well, Will Mitting, on that incredibly optimistic note, I'm inclined to wrap things up, actually. But I want to ask you if there's just one more thing you want to share with us this evening in terms of what you're looking at for 2021 or what's going to be a particularly exciting thing to keep our eyes on. Well, I think and I think we talked a lot about the industry, certainly from uh, from from our perspective. Um, there's two things we're focusing on for the rest of the year. One is uh, we've just built a, a new uh, a new data sharing platform uh, that we think has a potential to to to, to make significant inroads into operational benchmarking, and we're talking about that with with a number of clients um, with a view to launching uh, the first one of the first private benchmark uh, in in Q2. So that's exciting for us at the moment. And I think fundamentally, the big question we ask, and I know speaking to to some of my former colleagues at FIW and friends at FIA that everyone's asking the same question is, what does the event model post-COVID look like and, and how quickly will that come back on stream? Um, and there are a lot of you know, a lot of uncertain questions about that, but without a doubt, it will come back. Um, without a doubt, it will come back very differently to how it was before. Well, on that note, and obviously an apocalyptic one, because I'm sure as we've had many viewers from the Exchange Traded Derivatives business today, who've all probably not been able to go to a conference for at least a year. So that therefore means that like me, they've run out of t-shirts at this juncture, because obviously that's one of the things that everybody looked forward to, to get to the Rat's Mouth Boca Raton in the middle of March for, amongst other things. Will Mitting, thank you very much. It's been really fascinating to hear about the many challenges there are both on the Exchange Traded Derivatives side operationally throughout the stack for brokers, for the proprietary traders. Interesting, as you say, to see how many proprietary traders are now looking towards emerging markets, three quarters of them, 74% going off in terms of time. And we have, by the looks of it, a remarkable final question that has come in. So will we see legislators and regulators develop divergent opinions on who owns the data? And will that impact the revenue of exchanges? Good evening, Martin Watkins. Will. So I know who owns who owns the data is is almost a philosophical question. And and I don't think the regulators will will, will weigh in on, on that side. Certainly, I think what, what regulators may do, and this is I think the risk that exchanges are certainly fully aware of, and, and I think 
need to respond to collectively through potentially one of the the associations is that they will limit how much you can charge and there's already talks uh, talk about having a, a transparency over the cost of your processing of the data um, and then a benchmarked increase on how much you as a as an exchange or a data provider can um, charge on top of your cost of producing and, and disseminating that data so that i think is probably the nuclear option rather than um opinions on who owns the data obviously you know, the market thinks it's their data the exchange thinks because they process it, it's their data i don't think the regulators will go down that line but i do think there's a very very real risk of draconian action from regulators when it comes to market data that will have serious impact on on exchange revenues and i'm certain that that that, 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 that those uh, those exchanges that, that are currently making significant proportions of their revenue from market data are very aware of that very interesting. And also, we've got one final comment, which is really illuminating. Thank you very much, Will, for that answer. Really super question altogether, Martin Watkins. Great to see you as usual. So, Jonathan Cowan's back, the latest on ESG investing. He was digging into the motivations, and NNIP found that 97% of Nordic investors viewed it as very important, while climate action, affordable and clean energy, as well as clean water, and sanitation were cited as the most important components of the sustainable development goals. That certainly sounds like there's a big ESG future in ETD to me. What do you think, Will? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think this is it, the groundswell is, is so big, it, it can't be stopped now. And um, yeah, I think absolutely it is. It's going to get bigger and bigger. And it has to be said, that's also bigger and bigger in terms of questions. I feel a bit like Artie Bell at the end of one of those Rowan and Martin's laugh-ins and his cold Scott element coming over. However, this is anything but very interesting but stupid. It is very interesting. Full stop, this whole ESG debate. Thank you very much, Jonathan Cowan. Thank you to all of our questions today. Thank you, Jonathan Cowan. Thank you, Martin Watkins. Stuart, he gave us a couple of uh, excellent questions throughout the course of time. It was lovely to hear from Danny Corrigan earlier on during the course of the day and also Tom Lant, amongst others. Several of you were also behind anonymity, so we couldn't manage to tell who you were. Well, that's absolutely perfectly reasonable if you were doing, a, I suppose, a suitable privacy arrangement for your exchange-traded derivatives. It only remains for me to say thank you very much for watching this live stream. Don't forget, before you log off, hit the like button at the bottom of the page, please, so that we can roar up the interested parts of the search engine pieces that virtually nobody can actually manage to understand but all we do know is more likes means more popularity i'll catch you on exchangeinvest.com during the course of the week to all of our great subscribers will mitting's going to catch you at acuity.io and i look forward to discussing some of your future research well it's been absolutely fascinating having you on the show thank you very much also to our production team too Beata, Ola, Claude, and indeed Pippa. It's been a fantastic IPO vid. This is the conclusion of IPO vid 016. Have a great week in markets. We'll be back next Tuesday, 1900 CET, 1800 London, 1300 in New York. Thanks for watching.